If you've got your Bibles with you today, would you take them and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Philippians, chapter 1. It wasn't obvious I am suffering a bit of a cold today, so I ask your indulgence if I sound a little more kermity than usual today. Uh, I can't quite hear myself talk anyway, so <clears throat> please forgive me if I cough a bit, but we'll power through. So we've been in Philippians chapter 1. These verses we look at today, verses 9 through 11, it's sort of the end of the introduction. It's going to be a transition into what follows the main body of the letter that starts in verse 12. And yet it's more than transition. These three verses are a prayer that Paul prays. It's one of my favorite Pauline prayers in all of the Bible. Uh, these three verses, it's fairly short for one of his prayers, and it's relatively simple, and yet it's so straightforward. And it's such a, a direct, a central prayer. And the things that he prays for the church in Philippi are a worthy model for us. So we think about how do we pray for one another? Parents, how do you pray for your kids? Spouses, how do you pray for your significant other? How do you pray for your friends? How do you pray for the church at large in your own times of prayer? This is a good model prayer for us to use. It's Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And let me ask you, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? Philippians 1.9, this is the word of the Lord. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word. <clears throat> Even as it relates this prayer of Paul's for this congregation, Father, it is still your word given to us to encourage us, to build us up in the faith, to draw us towards Christ, to grow us in holiness and in love and in faith. And so, Father, we ask that, the, that your spirit will be with us today that he will be the one who does the work of taking your word and pressing it upon our hearts. Lord, that he will be faithful, as you have promised, to use the, the word written and the word preached to do the work of building us up in Christ, sanctifying us, growing us in Christ-likeness. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Do you ever struggle to pray? Do you ever struggle with a frequency, perhaps feeling like you just don't pray as fervently as you ought or as frequently as you ought, or you set aside time for prayer and yet your mind is, perhaps it's blank, or perhaps it's just prone to wander? Do you ever struggle with prayer? It's really a, a unnecessary question because I know we do. I know we all do. I struggle with prayer. And yet, I think one of the most neglected resources that is available to us to help us with prayer, to teach us to pray, is simply the Bible itself. 
including the prayers that are written for us in the Scriptures. There are so many wonderful ones that, that we can draw from, even if we think of the Old Testament. Of course, we have the book of Psalms, many of which are prayers to the Lord, and we can simply pray through one of the Psalms to guide us and to give expression to what our heart is feeling, and yet we might not even have the words that come to mind at the right time to speak these prayers to the Lord. We have the great prayer of worship and adoration of David in First Chronicles 29, prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, the great prayers of confession in Ezra 9 and Nehemiah 9, we have Hannah's wonderful prayer in 1 Samuel 2. In the New Testament, we think, of course, of the Lord's Prayer that we've prayed together. But there's also Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. There's Paul's prayers. Most of his letters start with either a prayer, or sometimes he'll just kind of give the report of the prayer, sort of tell them, let them know what he's praying for them, and that in itself is useful to us. And there's wonderful ones in Colossians and 1 Thessalonians. Ephesians has many wonderful prayers in it. But one of my favorites is this simple prayer. It's right here in Philippians chapter 1. And it's useful for us to take these prayers that are in the Scriptures and just make them our own. Make them our own. As long as we're praying them with sincerity, we don't just pray them rotely, not just saying the words for the sake of saying the words, but, uh, but they can help us to express the desires of our heart. They teach us how to pray and what sorts of things we ought to be praying for. Sometimes it's good for us just to take a biblical prayer and just pray straight through it. Just in the words that are given to us for the sake of us praying. Sometimes it's useful to sort of do an annotated version of the prayer. To pray through a biblical prayer and yet sort of pause after each phrase or after each big idea. Just kind of add your own prayers to it. Expand it a little bit with the details of your own life. And sort of use the prayer as more of an outline. It will guide you through different aspects of prayer. <clears throat> I think one of the beauties of praying biblical prayers is that it, it has this effect of recalibrating our heart. It helps to reorient us and to reorient our prayers around those things which are truly significant. It helps us to lead a more biblically well-rounded prayer life, to keep our prayers a true means of communion with God, that are prayers filled with praise, and adoration, and confession, thanksgiving, and intercession, all of these things, as well as our petitions and our supplications, praying for the things that we need, the requests that are particular to our life. But have you ever experienced this sort of rut that we fall into where prayer becomes all about petition? It becomes all about sort of, Lord, this is my list of things I need help with. This is sort of my agenda for the day. Father, will you help me with it? And we want to say, of course, that all prayers of those kind are legitimate. It's good. God tells us. In fact, Jesus commands us to pray for the things that we need. He tells us in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He tells us in 1 Peter 5, cast all of your cares on him, for he cares for you. He wants us to come with our needs. And yet we ought also to come with prayers of praise and worship, adoration, confession, intercession, thanksgiving. When we read these biblical prayers, they model for us well-rounded prayers. They model for us sort of some of the big ideas that we can skip. 
these big spiritual ideas where Paul will be praying for the spiritual state of the churches. He'll be praying for their faith to be grounded in Christ, for their love to be growing as they learn more of Christ, for their hope to be solid and sustained, for their knowledge of the gospel. <clears throat> I love that prayer in Ephesians uh, 3, where he prays that, that they might know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that they might know the height and the depth, the breadth and the width of the love of Christ. What a great prayer. How, how often do we pray, Lord, simply help me to know the, the dimensions of the love of Christ for me that I do not yet know. I, I want all of us to pray that prayer more regularly as, as Paul models for us in Ephesians. So we see Paul make sort of three main requests in this prayer in Philippians, that we would be deepened in our love, deepened in our insight, and deepened in our perspective. Deepened in our love, our insight, and our perspective. First, in, in verse 9, his prayer is that our love <clears throat> will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. <clears throat> he wants the Philippians to grow in their love. And I think this is such a <clears throat> wonderful prayer that he prays for this church because we know how much he loves this church. We know the relationship that the Philippians and Paul have, that this is a letter of thanksgiving. And so we have some idea that this church in Philippi, although it's not perfect by any means, and there are problems, nevertheless, it's generally a, a, a spiritual church with believers who know Christ and love one another. And so his prayer is not <clears throat> that they would begin to love one another. He's looking at believers who do love one another, and he says, this is my prayer, that your love will abound more and more, that you will continue to grow in your love. And he doesn't specify what kind of love so... I think we take that as broadly as possible. That their love for God will abound more and more. That as they continue to, to grow and to become mature, that, that they will love Christ more and more in more tangible ways, in more intangible ways. You could think not only of that, but of their love for one another together as a church, their love for the saints, their love for fellow believers in the church that that will continue to grow and they will abound more and more in love for each other. And possibly also for their love for the lost, their compassion on those who don't yet know Christ, that that will continue abounding more and more as they grow in their knowledge and in their discernment. <clears throat> he says to them, this is a church that's already loving and yet here's his pastoral concern for them. That that love may abound more and more. That they don't become content, settled in, comfortable with what they have already attained, but that they will continue making progress and being conformed into the image of Christ more and more love. This is a, a great model of a prayer that, that we ought to be praying for ourselves and for one another, parents, for your children, that their love may continue to abound more and more. Children, pray it for your parents, that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight. And so we can break it down a little bit. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more with these two things, with knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge and all discernment, two things that will lead to greater love. The first is knowledge. <clears throat> and the prayer here is that your love may abound with knowledge. And in some ways I find this almost surprising because 
we have a tendency, don't we, to separate knowledge and love, right? We, we sort of say one is this academic sort of ethereal thing. We have knowledge over here. And there's love over here. This is very practical. This is very down to earth. This is how we deal with people. Knowledge is how we deal with ideas. But he does not separate them. He says, I pray that your love may increase as your knowledge increases and that it will abound with all knowledge. What I think he means by this knowledge is is probably knowledge of the gospel. Knowledge of God's love for us in Christ and all that that contains. So it, it will include within it the, the knowledge of our sinfulness. That as you grow deeper in your knowledge, your true, accurate, spiritual self-knowledge of who you are, that, that will cause you to grow in love for one another. That will cause you to grow in your love for God, as you see more of his grace, that will cause you to grow in your love for one another. Give you a greater compassion for each other as you are sort of humbled by this self-knowledge of your own sinfulness. But it's not just that. It's your knowledge of God. It's your knowledge of his mercy, his, his holiness and his beauty and the wonder of Jesus' sacrificial love shown at the cross. Your knowledge of the victory of his resurrection, the heavenly blessings that are now all ours in Christ. And you see, there's a challenge for us first to be always growing in our knowledge. To be never content, no matter how long we have been in church, no matter how many Bible studies we have done, to be never content with what we know of Christ. But to always be growing, always learning. There's an amazing <clears throat> verse in 1 Peter 1.12 when he's talking about the gospel. And he says, these are things into which angels long to look. He says the angels in heaven, with all the knowledge that they must have over all the years that they have spent in the presence of God himself, he says, in respect to the gospel, these are things angels are still longing to look into. How much more holy discontent should we have then for growing in our knowledge of Christ and his mercy to us? And what he says is that as we grow in that, the result of growing in knowledge is that our love abounds more and more. This is the biblical pattern of growth. That as we grow in knowledge, it causes us to abound in love. The more deeply we know of sin and wrath and grace and mercy and righteousness, the more we love God and one another. <clears throat> See, he, he doesn't separate them in terms of saying it's only the knowledge of God that's important. But he also doesn't separate them and say, don't worry about all that detail and that theological minutiae. Just worry about loving one another. See, he says these two things belong together. Knowledge and love go together. He says our theology is designed to serve our love. The more we know, the more we love, and the better we love. Now there's also, I believe, a very timely warning for us to hear in this passage. <clears throat> there's an important insight for us that comes as a warning. He says, our theology is meant to serve our love. That as we grow in theological knowledge, the end game of that is that we love one another better, more humbly, more sacrificially, with more care for the other person. He would say, I believe that theological knowledge, that's never the goal. Biblical knowledge as good and edifying as that is, that's not the end goal of learning. 
the end goal is not simply to grow in our knowledge and to build sort of this greater mental edifice, but the goal is that we would love one another better, that we would love God more deeply and more richly. As Paul says, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. He would never tell us to pursue theological knowledge as an end in itself. As good as it is, the goal of it is to make us more like Christ, to make us better lovers of God, better uh, lovers of one another in the church. Now for us, this can be a, a timely warning because we come from a tradition in the Reformed Church that values theological knowledge very highly, don't we? As well we should, I believe. That's why I tend to preach expositional sermons going through books of the Bible. With all the ups and downs, the easy parts and the hard parts, I want us to learn the Bible. I want us to be uh, comfortable with all of the scriptures, Old Testament and New. And yet the goal of all of that is not simply that we would be uh, very biblically literate. The goal is that we will be more like Christ. That's the goal of biblical knowledge and theological knowledge. See, any time we think we are learning, any time we think we're growing in the faith and yet all we're doing is gaining new understanding without any new patterns of life, we haven't yet learned as we ought to learn. The goal of knowledge is that we might abound more and more in love that we might be more and more willing to lay down our lives for others, that we might be more and more captured by the love of God for us in Christ, more easily moved to worship, more thankful for the graces and the mercies that are ours in Christ. We are to grow in our knowledge and insight in order that we might love better, that we might abound more and more, that we might have a heart that is more softened to God more eager to love, to serve him with gladness and with thankfulness. It's similar to what Paul prays for First Timothy. For Timothy in First Timothy, chapter 1, he says, The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, all of those things, that pure heart, that sincere faith, those are in service of love. He says, that's the goal. That's the goal, that we might love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we, our love may abound more and more with knowledge and with all discernment. Here's the second thing. Not only knowledge, but all discernment, or some translations say insight, also a good word. This word is found mostly, in terms of the Bible, it's found mostly in Proverbs. It's a very practical kind of wisdom that describes looking at a situation and being able to know what is the best course of action for me. What's the right thing to do? What's the right words to say in any given context? It says most of the time in Proverbs, the result of having that wisdom is you know exactly what to say. You say a, a fitting word in its season. You speak well, gracefully. It, it really refers not so much to growing in intellectual knowledge, but to growing in the practical ability to look at a person or look at a situation and to know what is best. That's what the Bible means by wisdom. Skill in the art of godly living. Skill in the art of godly living. And this is so important. I mean, we all know that life is complex. Life is not 
black or white. We rarely face problems on any given day that are completely black or white issues where we know this is absolutely the wrong thing to do, this is absolutely the right thing to do. We are often faced with the necessity for wisdom, for skill in the art of godly living, to look at a situation with insight, with discernment, to know what's the best way to proceed, what's the right thing to say. And Paul's prayer is that as you grow in this godly skill, that it will help your love to abound more and more. That as you mature in your faith and are able to face any given situation and know the godly way to act, that this will help you to love one another. In many ways, this prayer in this first chapter reflects exactly what our mission at New Life is. If you think about this, Paul's prayer is that knowledge will lead to love, which will result in the glory of God in verse 11. It says that their love may abound more and more as it's filled with knowledge, and that that will abound then to the glory of God. Isn't that our mission statement for us? It's in the first page of the bulletin. I'm sure you read it and meditate on it weekly. That is that we might give glory to God through worship, nurture, and witness, all fueled by the gospel of Christ. And so we say again, it's fueled by the gospel. And the more you know of God in Christ in the gospel, that that will cause you to grow in love through worship and nurture and witness. And that will abound then to the glory of God. It's what we say is our big picture idea of our church, that the goal is to give glory to God. And the way we do that is through loving God in worship, through loving one another in nurture, through loving those who are not yet saved in witness, And all of that is fueled by our knowledge of the mercy of God in Christ. That's our desire for new life, and it's Paul's desire for the church at Philippi. And so he's praying here that they may be deepened in their love. He also prays that they might be deepened in their insight. And this is in verse 10. As he prays that they may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He prays that they might learn to approve what is excellent. As their love abounds more and more, they will be able to approve what is excellent. This speaks to being renewed in their mind. The first first petition, rather, in verse 9, speaks to being renewed in their heart as they abound in love. This speaks to approving what is excellent. That is being renewed in their mind. You see, the evidence of being renewed in mind is that you have a mind then that makes godly choices when faced with alternative visions of life. As we often all are on a regular basis, faced with alternative visions of what life could be, you make godly choices. See, a renewed mind is not necessarily a smart mind, but it's a godly mind. A renewed mind one that evidences the work of the Spirit, is not necessarily a smart mind, but a godly mind. And this is what I mean. The evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's life is is not that a person will then become an expert in all things theological. They'll become, uh, you know, the Bible answer man, or they'll be able to defend the faith against all imposters, as good as those things are. The evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's mind is that they are growing in their hatred of their own indwelling sin. Is that they're growing in their love for Jesus 
and their heart is more quickly softened when they are convicted of their own sin and confronted with the mercy of Christ. They're growing in their compassion for one another. They're displaying more fruit of the Spirit in their everyday life. Those are the things that are evidence of a Spirit's work in a person's mind. And what he says here is when his prayer is that they may approve what is excellent. The idea here is, some, is the idea of testing something and finding it to be acceptable. Testing something and finding it to be acceptable. So the same word is used of testing metals or monies to ensure that they were genuine. It's used in the Gospels of testing oxen. That a farmer might want to test them to approve whether or not these oxen are going to be ones that are useful, ones that are hard workers, ones that are good for him to purchase and put to use on his farm. And here's Paul's prayer for them, is that as they are looking at life, as they are confronted with all sorts of choices on any given day, that they will have the wisdom and the renewed mind that they need to be able to make godly decisions about what is excellent. See, it takes more than simply knowledge. It does take knowledge, but it takes more than knowledge to do what is right. Knowing that something is sin is not always enough to keep you from then giving in to the temptation to that sin. Right? We need more than knowledge. <clears throat> we also need wisdom. We also need godliness. We need the power of the Spirit at work in our hearts. Approving what is excellent requires that we have the mind of Christ. We see a few examples of this in Philippians, and, and I think pointing them out will give a little more clarity to what he means by approving what is excellent. <clears throat> He gives his own personal example in chapter 3, verse 7, when he says, and speaking of his own personal spiritual resume, he says, <clears throat> Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things. See, here's his own example when he says, I look at my life and I count certain things to be rubbish. That is, I reckon them to be of no value in comparison to this other thing, which is of surpassing value. He is faced with a choice of where does he place his trust? What will he lean on for his own personal sense of security? And he says, I look at all of these things, what I have accomplished, and I find them to be worthless. My trust is only in the surpassing value of Christ. And he is saying, that is an example of approving what is excellent. Approving what is excellent, he's making the wise choice of putting his faith on Christ rather than on his own accomplishments. He is testing them, looking at the aspects of life and finding them to be acceptable or not acceptable. Different things are vying for a spot in his life and he puts them to, a te to the test to see if he can approve what is excellent. He tells us to do the same thing in chapter 4 where he says, Finally, my brothers, in verse 8, Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent, worthy of praise, think about such things. He's saying, look at all the things in life and approve those which are excellent. Spend your time on those. Think on those things. And if something is not uh, tested as excellent, don't approve of it. Or again, uh, perhaps a more practical example is in chapter 2, verse 4, when he says... <clears throat> Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. 
what he says there is there are different uh, perspectives, different attitudes that will vie for your attention during the day. Which one will you choose? Will you choose to look at your own needs ahead of others or will you choose to look at their needs ahead of yours? And you have to test these various options and approve which one is excellent. And this is his prayer that you may be able to approve what is excellent. That is, make the godly choices. Choose that which is good. Among all the things that vie for your attention in the course of ordinary life that you may approve that which is excellent, that you may be renewed in your mind. So the prayer is to be deepened in love, secondly deepened in insight or wisdom, but also deepened in our perspective. When we look at the end of the prayer here, the end of verse 10. So that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. His prayer here is that we will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, all to the glory and the praise of God. And here's the final goal of Paul's prayer. When I think of my own prayers in comparison to what Paul is praying for and the, the grandeur of the scope of, of what he hopes for this church, I can't help but think that I, I pray too small of prayers. That his ultimate prayer for the church is he looks at them and he prays, Lord, may they be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Whatever it takes in their lives, whatever other things are going on, in the midst of it all, will you be at work in their lives such that they may be found pure and blameless on that great day, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, all to the glory and the praise of God. He has this broad horizon, this perspective to his prayers that he sees the people and he sees them not merely as a set of, of temporal needs and cares and problems, but he sees them as people who are living their lives in light of that great day of the return of Jesus Christ. He says, Lord, on that day, find them to be pure and blameless. May your spirit be at work in them now in such a way that they are growing in love for Christ and in hatred of sin, that, that on that day they will abound to the praise of Christ, that it will be seen that he has been at work in their lives in such a way as to, to purify his own bride, to cause her to be pure and without blemish, all filled with the glory for the sake of of Christ. See, here I see Paul praying prayers of what truly matters in life. Here I see Paul so far removed from sort of the shopping list style of prayer of, Lord, this is my agenda for the day and I need help. And, and we say, yes, that's good. God wants those things prayed for as well. But let's not neglect to, to broaden the perspective of our heart and say, Lord, my desire is to be found pure and blameless on that day. My desire is that however other things go, Lord, that your, work, your spirit will be at work in me towards this one end. There's a sense of priority. There's a sense of perspective. That they'll be pure and blameless, that they'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So, so pure and blameless, that means not filled with sin, filled with what instead? The fruit of righteousness. He's praying, Lord, may all the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. May, may these be the things that define their lives. May they be filled with them. All to the glory and the praise of God. And this, I believe, is what makes this prayer so compelling, is that he is praying for his people, he's praying for the church, he's praying for us in such a way that he's taking our lives and setting them within the grand context of the glory of God in Christ and saying, may they have a part to play in giving glory to God on that day. In all of the small things, in all of the small ways that our love may abound more and more on a daily, down-to-earth basis, treating one another with care and concern, putting someone else's needs ahead of my own. He says those are all caught up in this great story of, of giving glory to God. And to the extent that I can look at someone else and say, okay, I, I, by the power of the Spirit, I will choose to put your needs ahead of my own. I'm going to deny myself. He says, that gives glory to God. He says, don't think of that as the small needs of the day. Think of that as the, the great purpose of believers being formed into the image of Christ. He says, don't, don't stumble over thinking that your daily issues of obedience to the, the Word, those are not small matters those are things which on that day will be seen to give glory to God. That Christ was indeed at work through the power of his spirit in his church. That he was purifying his people. That he was rooting out the sin in your life. That he was filling you with the fruit of righteousness and you'll know it by all these small acts of daily obedience that will give glory and praise to God on that day. That's his prayer for his people. That's his prayer for us and and what I believe is a model prayer for us for, to pray for one another. That even as Paul will go on in the book of Philippians to, to bring up specific issues, to try to root out little specific sins among the church, he'll urge them to pursue unity as a church. Why unity? Why is it so important that they get along? Well, he will say that will be a demonstration of the love of God in Christ and the power of his spirit at work in his people. He'll urge them to, to set other people's needs ahead of their own. And, and all of these small things that say, okay, the LA Times is never going to report on this. This is not going to be a culture-defining, radical act of world-changing stuff. But it's the small acts of daily obedience that show that our love is abounding more and more because we're filled with the knowledge of Christ growing in our discernment, approving what is excellent, all to the glory and the praise of God. Let's pray this for one another. Let's pray it for our church, for our families, our friends, our communities. This is what matters. God-glorifying, gospel-shaped love filled with the fruit of righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the instruction that you give to your people that we might walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel that we have received, that is pleasing to Christ and glorifying to God. And yet, Lord, we recognize on our own this is beyond us. We do not have the strength. So give us the power of your spirit. Fill us with the love of Christ. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see how high and how deep, how broad and how wide is his love for his people. 
and take these scriptures and press them on our hearts, that we might store them up in our hearts and practice them in our lives. In the name of Christ we pray.